2: Christmas, everyone. Welcome to the world-famous Jiggy Jaguar radio
1: program. Broadcasting live from Hutchinson, Kansas. Call Jiggy right now. 267-22-JIGGY. Presenting Jiggy
2: Jaguar. Yes indeed. Welcome to it. It is the big broadcast. We are coast to coast. We are border to bowler. We are on iHeartRadio today. And we are going to go to our first guests. They are going to join us here in just a few moments. The fantastic Roger Homefield is with us. He is, uh, of course, our uh, we join we join with him once a month to uh, come on and talk issues and uh, talk about some of the different things going on out there. We also have with us today Admiral John Palmer with us as well, and we are going to connect. IQ Al Rizzoli and the fantastic Don Mazzella uh, to our parade of superstars today here on our big broadcast. So uh, while I get everybody on here, um, Roger, how was your Thanksgiving holiday, sir?
1: Well, you know, the last time that we spoke, Jiggy, was uh, before the election. Yes. So it was somewhat muted. <laughs> kind of been a, Somewhat uh, I've been in a death spiral ever since. No. Uh, no, it, it was fine. I'm I'm I've got a lot to be thankful for, personally, I can tell you that.
2: Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. So uh we are gonna go to Our guests are in just a few moments. If you want to join us each and every day, you can do that over on iHeartRadio. Also, 50-plus AM FM stations across the country and around the world. And uh, Don Mazzella and IQL Rizzoli will join us here in just a few moments and uh, Roger homefield with us today uh, as well and uh, later on we will chat with the fantastic uh, Josh Bernstein who by the way Roger you you you, you, you said something about uh, you know you're you're you were having some issues I I remember the day after the election I tried to get Josh Bernstein on this show and he's like I can't even get out of bed so i'm so overcome i can't get out of bed so yeah. <laughs> so you 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 never know <laughs> but uh I I think we've got IQ. I, IQ. or no, it's it's still doing its thing. It's still spinning around the the spinning wheel of death, as they say. But uh, uh, IQ and Don will join us, uh, I guess, here in just a few. So uh, let's start with uh, the Admiral, um, John. Tell us a little bit about your latest book.
0: Well, thanks, James. Good to be here. Uh, the latest book is is entitled "From Bluegrass to Blue Water: Lessons in Farm Philosophy and Navy Leadership." It's a book of lessons. Uh, you could call it a hybrid memoir book of lessons, but the, the memoir portion is only to illustrate how the lessons were infused throughout, uh, throughout my life. And so it starts, the farm philosophy starts uh, when I was a child on a cattle and tobacco farm in central Kentucky. And it basically goes through the priority system and paces that my parents put me through as well as my brother and sister. Priority system of farm faith and education. That's how we work things. Goes more into education, uh, as as I as I hail from a family full of educators, and then it goes into college at the Citadel. A lot of the farm lessons that were taught there, which were basically designed to make a self-sustaining uh, adult that can contribute to society, certainly reinforced heavily at the Citadel for sure. Uh, and it also uh, trained me exceedingly well for a Navy career that spanned 32 years. And then that second uh, uh, second half of the book really dives into that Navy career, and it it goes to the point of saying, you know, depending on where you are in your career, new entrant, middle management, command, admiral, these are the different things you have to do, the different lenses through which you must look, the different ways you must manage your time and resources to be effective. There's a great deal of difference between a young new entrant who is uh, responsible for uh, execution only, just doing what they're told, Mm -hmm. And someone who is in a pinnacle position of being a, an Admiral or a General officer. I happen to currently be a CEO, it's a completely different way of looking at things. And you have to change and adapt as you get more senior in any organization.
2: And that's really the long and the short of the book. Fantastic. So, uh, I guess we'll start with Roger. Roger, do you have any questions for the Admiral?
1: Uh, no, uh, I was fortunate to uh, have some time. I met the Admiral uh, before we came on the air. And uh, he's extremely impressive. I, I proudly told him that my dad's a Navy man, too. In fact, uh, Admiral Palmer, part of my wall in the living room looks pretty much like the wall behind you. You know, have a little thing set up for, for him. But, um, well, obviously, I haven't read the book. Uh, uh, Admiral Palmer, do you, are you very political uh, or do you stay out of that fray? Or what do you what's your attitude about that?
0: I, I don't get I don't delve too much into politics. One of the fortunate things when you're in the military is they they advise you to stay apolitical uh, and the like. That was a good habit to have. I have my personal beliefs and it, as with many military, probably is is center center right, I, I would say. but the book is not designed to be political. Um, I do think that there are some home bases for lots of people who may have certain political proclivities. So the um, the farm phase, is really if you consider my parents were born in the 20s depression era folks uh, my dad's a world war ii paratrooper all my grandparents were born in the 1800s there's an awful lot of hearkening back to how we raised kids in the 20th century how we created kids who are self-sustaining and for farm kids how you take on a tremendous amount of adult responsibility at a very young age i was driving on the road and handling heavy equipment eight nine years old got my first shotgun when i was eight years old I was left to work and problem solve on the farm uh, with no adult supervision, starting at a very young age, and that's pretty typical of farm kids. So I would say, from that standpoint, a lot of flyover states would look at that portion of the book and they would like it a lot, especially when you infuse farm, the faith, and the education. Now, point of fact, my parents were Roosevelt Democrats their whole life, you know. So the part and the parties have moved around a little bit and so forth. So the idea that this is a red meat, red meat, red state type of book. Really not so, but I do think different people from different walks of life will identify with it. Um, and so uh, so really, uh, my politics, uh, if you get me one-on-one, you know, I might <laughs> go in in a little bit deeper, uh, but otherwise, uh, I, I reserve the right to have the same, uh, same view on things publicly as I did when I
1: was in uniform. It, it sounds like you're more interested in the responsibility and respect issue as far as the way things were when you say you hearken for a day back, uh, uh, Jiggy, does that bring those thoughts to mind? The rock, yes. ball, just you know, when people worked and they were proud of working, and and it's like we're not having this uh discussion these days. Nobody, we don't. Nobody is coming on to say, listen, we, you can pass this, you can pass that. We can argue about this and that, but at the end of the day, if we don't all decide to pull our own pants up and decide, are we going to contribute something to this world? Anyway, I don't mean to get all... Well, <laughs> you know,
0: we, we say in the start of the book, you know, my grandmother's lesson to us was work is work. Work's not fun, not often meant to be fun, right. often arduous drudgery, but an absolute necessity to put you in a position to support yourself. And work exposes uh, the goodness of your character and also highlights the uh, the flaws in your character and often exposes a charlatan. So it's an absolute necessity uh, to getting by in life, and the idea of, of taking children and making sure that, that you are beginning with the end in mind, you are creating young adults. So if you're creating young adults that don't have any reps and sets at handling adversity, you're creating young adults that are going to be dependent on you as a parent of adult children on into the future. And so I think that that's really uh, the lessons my parents taught us. And and it's And I will point out also, this first part of the book is not the Waltons. There's some rough and tumble <laughs> stuff in there. And, you know, from my dad, you know, as I said, was a paratrooper. My mother was, uh, was a teacher. Um, they, they told us to educate our way off the farm. Always have to be prepared to go back, but educate your way off the farm. And then, uh, and then you're on your own. And there was no invitation implied or expressed from our parents to go back home after college. So the idea that you go home and get settled and figure things out. My dad left home at 15 before World War II because things were pretty hard in Appalachia, He asked his father's permission to do so, but he didn't. He lived above a grocery store uh, a couple blocks from my mom's house in Lexington, Kentucky, and that's how they 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 met. He delivered groceries. So for a guy who uh, left home at 15, the idea that a college graduate finishing college can't figure out what to do with themselves to support themselves is, is, is completely anathema. He, he would not understand that at all. So that's really kind of the difference between uh, what you see then and now. We have to get out of the business of America. We have to get out of the business of of, of raising feral and fragile children, video game junkies and and social media addicts. Got to give them some real experiences and we got to get them on their way to being able to support themselves and be the type of citizens we need to take over when we're too old to do that.
1: Uh, Jiggy, can I ask you another question? Go ahead, brother, go ahead. I, I agree with you a thousand percent. But do you ever feel that that the schools of today and their curriculum and the people that they have as teachers themselves and the administrations and the, do you feel that that's working? I'm not trying to drag you into a political league, but do you not feel that that is really working against what you what you well, I, want? I will, I will say we were blessed with our kids.
0: I have two children. They're both adults, uh, uh, both college graduates on time. Got uh, spouses, kids, jobs. Marvelous. We were blessed to be able to put them in public schools the whole way. My yes. wife and I moved 19 times in the Navy, lived in 13 states, and just very blessed and fortunate that we had good schools. So my experience is the schools are pretty good. Uh, my daughter-in-law's teacher, my mom was a teacher. Um, you know, I, I read the news. You know, and when I see, you know, I, I think we need to to be about the business of of uh, having a finite number of priorities at the top, and that's reading, that's writing, that's arithmetic, that's history, that's constitutional studies, and so forth, to be able to put our kids in a position to operate once they, once they get older. Any asymmetric agendas that distract from that, my opinion, suboptimizes the educational experience. So I will say my firsthand experience with the educational system in America is, is, is quite good for me and my kids and my wife. Uh, but I do, I do read the papers, and I am, you know, sometimes disappointed with what I see. I'll say this: a very interesting story. Uh, and I didn't put this in the book, and I should have. My mother's first job, although she was raised in a middle-class family in Lexington, Kentucky, was at Pine Mountain Settlement School in Harlan, Kentucky, which is uh, one of the. It was one of the last existing one-room schoolhouses, and she taught there. Uh, it was her first teaching job, so you can imagine being up there with a bunch of mountain kids, uh, as a flatlander from Lexington uh, Mm -hmm. teaching, uh, teaching one through 12 in a one room schoolhouse. She mentioned that from time to time, she would have young boys that would get into a scuffle as they would. So her answer wasn't timeout and her answer wasn't calling the parents and all that type of stuff. She had two eight ounce pairs of boxing gloves under her desk at recess. She would take the belligerents outside with the class. They would form a circle. She would roll up her sleeves. She would explain the rules of boxing to the kids They'd put their gloves on, swing wildly for 35 seconds, not land a punch half a time. (laughs) Then she would stop the uh, engagement. She'd have them remove their gloves, shake hands, and would have the class applaud because they had settled the the matter honorably. Now, in this day and time, that that obviously, that wouldn't fly. That would accuse her of fight But that's the difference in how kind of America was. And let's also be uh, keen to understand that in eastern Kentucky, even in the rural areas of Kentucky now, Most kids have access to firearms, if not own them themselves. So these kids were not bringing guns to school and shooting things up because my opinion is uh, my mother got uh, all the angst out nearly immediately. And then she said when they would do that and they would shake hands, they'd be fast friends for the rest of their lives. It was was really an interesting exhibition. But uh, I'm sure down the line, somebody's going to listen to this and just be uh, appalled. But it's just a, a window into how things uh, how things were uh, as we raised our kids.
1: Uh, I love that story. Is it in the book? Is it in your book?
0: That, that one is not in the book. Uh, you got to go
1: back. You got to put it. In. Yeah, it wasn't
0: uh, <laughs> wasn't part of our experience. I, I do point out my father's uh, you know family in Appalachia and, and in in eastern Kentucky Lee County, mother in uh, in Lexington. How the two families kind of created our parents, which created the atmosphere for us. So, so that was in there. Uh, but uh, for every lessons chapter in the book, there is a practical application chapter that tells a story like that that shows whether the lessons were uh, effective or not, how effective they were and how they worked. So, you know, when you get into the Navy, we call them sea stories, right, as to, uh, uh, as to those types of uh, uh, exhibitions and lessons that we have. And really, so you get into the Navy side, and so what are, you telling, uh, what are you telling new entrants, junior officers in the Navy? Basically, it's execution. You're in the business of following orders, right? And, and that's what you do as a new officer. And you need to have the snappy salute and be willing to work long hours and, and be tired at the end of the day. And it forces you to square away your family at home in terms of the work-life balance. You need to get that settled out earlier in your career, or you're not going to catch that game up later on. But then, as you go from uh, junior entrant to mid-grade officer, right? Then you start dealing with critical thinking. You start dealing in the gray spaces. And when you're a junior officer, you're the answers to all your problems are at the poles, right or wrong, black or white, go or no go. You're in the you're in the execution mode. It's not that hard. It's just effort. That's all you have to apply. You get in the gray spaces, those poles of black and white turn gray, and then it's a uh, and then it's a matter of resource trade-off. Quite frankly. It's a, it is a game in which there are never any complete winners and complete losers. You're going to win and you're going to lose. But those particular situations, decision briefs, as you call them, uh, will mean the difference between you being resourced to do your part of the mission or not. And so that's where, as you get into the, the, the midway, that you have to get into critical thinking and bringing data to the equation. And I, I put in the book that I'm, I'm often amazed uh, both in and out of the Navy, how far we would get down down the decision path without somebody <laughs> bringing some kind of data to the table to, to validate whether a good idea is good and worthy of, of applying resources to do it or whether it's something that needs to be set aside because it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Then when you get to command, baby, all the chips are in the middle of the table at that point. You are never at greater career risk than when you are in command because uh you know uh, and nothing hones the uh, hones your decision making nothing sharpens your decision making like holding that final decision because everything is on the line and all it takes for your boss is to basically look at your performance and say i'm not feeling it i'm losing confidence and they give you a loss of confidence letter and you're out and there's really no redress there is no uh you know there is no higher court normally to to sort those things out so but command is a thrill and it's terrifying all at the same time because there's so much on the line. But you get to set your vision, you get to lead people, you get to see, uh, you get to see nearly immediate improvement based on what you want to do. Uh, and very similar to the kids, you know, when you're raising them, you have to develop your staff to be able to handle the reps and sets on your behalf. Uh, On the more simple, rudimentary things, because you don't have time in command to go down every rabbit hole. You have to exercise that staff. There are commanders out there that want to be in the decision making process for every decision. They're exhausted within a few weeks. uh, Their staff gets, you know, atrophies, gets whipsawed back and forth, doesn't work well. But so that's really how you go when you go through the continuum of the things you have to do. You know, when you're in command, can't do everything, you have to have pulse points. And when the pulse points pop red, that tells you go down that rabbit hole. Go fix it because it threatens your command, good order and discipline or the execution of the mission. So uh, very, uh, very interesting there. And then again, you know, you've got the sea stories that follow the command lessons that uh, that make the book even more interesting because it gives you a real sense of uh, a real sense of how those lessons work out there in the fleet or in the corporate world.
2: We have got a great guest with us today. John Palmer joins us here in our broadcast. Also, the fantastic Roger Homefield is with us. And uh, Roger is busier than a fruit merchant these days. He's got all sorts of different things going on. Uh, So, John, uh, tell me a little bit about your writing process for this book. Tell me and Roger a little bit about how you assembled this thing.
0: Man, I would love to tell you that uh, in the beginning, the earth was formless and I went to the library and I sat down with deliberation. I wrote this book. That's not the way it happened at all. Um, I may have mentioned to someone at some point that uh, if not for COVID, the book would not have gotten written. Here's why. I was in uh, my last tour uh, and my last five weeks of command and we were blessed with a, a fourth grandchild down here in South Carolina. My wife came down here. I was up in Columbus, Ohio, where my command was. And Columbus was shut down in total. Uh, couldn't go out in town. You could go to McDonald's and get a burger at the drive-thru. That was it. So in the off hours, I was in a little apartment, me and the dog, and that's it. And so my brother and sister and I had always wanted to get down the farm stuff about our parents because we wanted to be able to, to give it to the kids and the grandkids. And it was going to be nothing more than a handful of papers, you know, here's some, here's some rules to live by. It dawned on me at that point that I had spent decades, plural, talking to young naval officers about where they are in the career, what they need to think about, and or, or where they're going in their career, and what they need to think about differently. So I started to put that all together. I committed to writing every 15 minutes of every waking moment that I wasn't at work, or every wake, uh, 15 minutes of every hour that I wasn't at work. So a quarter of the time that I wasn't at work and I wasn't asleep, I wanted to get something down on paper. So it was a it was a Franken book to start off because I had all this crap, you know, on paper, and some of it was good and some was bad. I had no idea how it would sync it together. Um, over time, once I got out, I'd on the weekends I'd spend an hour or two just kind of thinking through how it might line up. Then, uh, you know, I, I I figured I'd have to self publish, so I need figured I would need publicists to get any traction with the book. I interviewed the top twenty five publicists in the U.S. A couple of them. Put me on to publishers that they thought might like the book so they put me on to fidelis publishing in nashville tennessee it's a faith-based publisher phenomenal organization gary Tarashita is the coo there and gary uh on the on the wings of the first three chapters on the farm he said i'll sign you up right now uh so uh fidelis uh certainly helped a lot with the editing and making it so uh, uh it makes uh, as much sense as possible but really, that was my writing style. I was forced into, uh, I was given an opportunity to, to uh, devote some time towards something where in a normal environment, I would not have done it. And uh, as a result of COVID uh, keeping me locked up for those five weeks by and large, uh, when I wasn't in my building, I wasn't in work, um, I was able to bang out a book. So there you go.
1: That's the process. That's awesome. Uh, you know, this is going to sound stupid. <laughs> but i particularly enjoyed admiral uh, palmer uh, and that's not what's stupid what's stupid is that part of the reason look i haven't watched network tv in decades certainly not after 9 11 i don't think i've watched any network t- hardly at all every now and then i, I flick it on and i go they're watching that you know and, and you just freak uh Anyway, it's been decades, but this, this one show, I, I started to watch it because I've got a streamer that's called, I hope you don't mind me saying, The Lost Ship, and uh, the captain of the ship, and just, it, they sold me, and it, just, uh, it you just, it reminds me of that, you remind me of that, of that, of that resolve, and that there are so many decisions, and just like what you said, and uh, anyway, I'm not here to promote that. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading your book, Admiral.
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell you. I think you'll like it. Um, you know, you get into the sea stories. There are lots of them in there. I was I spent nine years, nine years, almost nine years at sea. Uh, I was in the supply corps in the Navy. Now, supply corps are the business managers of the fleet. But we're, for the first ten years, we're very operational. We're assigned to SEAL teams, submarines, and everything in between. So if there's an operation going on, you better believe one of our uh, uh, supply corps officers is uh, is right in the middle of it. And so, you know, when you look at some of the sea stories. Uh, my first ship, we went to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. We went on nine days' notice. We were in the shipyards with our boilers ripped apart. So in nine days, the shipyard put us back together. We got underway. We picked up a bunch of Marines and helicopters. It was it was an amphibious ship uh, that we had not drilled with before, and we went over to Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So one of the lessons there in the book is how you, when you least expect it, expect it. You have to be ready. Uh, for any manner of uh, uh, eventuality there, so whether you're in the military or otherwise, but certainly when you're in the military. That's the macro. I then tell a, a micro sea story from that deployment where I wasn't ready. And, uh, and it made me a little nervous. So we had pulled, we'd been underway for about 110 straight days. And we pull into Jebel Ali, which is part of the emirate of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. In Abu Dhabi, we had an aircraft engine and we had to go get it. And so Uh, As a lieutenant junior grade, uh, I hopped in the truck with the driver they provided, a two and a half ton truck. Driver's name was McGee. We no sooner pull out than I figure out McGee does not speak nearly a word of English. So we're driving down a road (laughs) through a desert with signs I can't read, with a guy I can't communicate with. And I'm in uniform, but I'm unarmed. And even in a pre 9 11 terrorist environment, I am thinking to myself, McGee could drive me into camp of the bad guys. And I would be in a world of hurt. Well, it gets, it gets more interesting. We pull up to the base. Luckily, McGee gets me to the right base, and the uh, armed uh, nationals from their military uh, in Abu Dhabi come up to the window and they ask McGee a question in Arabic. And whatever he said was the wrong answer, because they pulled him out, threw him on the ground on the hot pavement, and held an automatic weapon uh, pointed at him. At which point, I go like this in the truck, right? Gentleman comes to my side, and in perfect English says, uh, "What is your business here, sir?" So I hand him the paperwork for the aircraft engine. I hand him my ID. He says, "You're free to go in." I said, "Without McGee." He says, "McGee can't go in." So luckily, farm kid, who had driven heavy equipment since I was eight or nine years old, two and a half ton trucks, snap, boom, bada boom, I drive onto the base. I get the engine from the Air Force. That's and awesome. then I had there's this funny smell coming and it's a barbecue. I haven't had a barbecued burger in <laughs> months, right? And I also don't have a map to get back, and I don't know if McGee's gonna be there, et cetera, et cetera. So I pull over to the airmen who are barbecuing. I get I get a ration of burgers for me. I get some for McGee in case he's still out there, who knows? <laughs> I get a map, I get directions, all this type of stuff. I should have had before I started. Go to the front gate, McGee's right where I left him. He's face down on the hot pavement, guys pointing a gun at him. He hops up, wipes the sweat and gravel off his face, hops in the truck. He's happier than a a, a pig in slop with two burgers and two cokes. And we go down the road. uh, And I made a commitment at that point. I said, look, when you least expect it, expect it. I was unprepared, didn't know the language, didn't know where I was going, didn't have a map, didn't have a security brief. Uh, So from then on, I made sure that I knew what was going on. Everywhere I went overseas, if I had any time in advance, I memorized like 12 or 13 phrases in the local language. I'm an American. I don't speak this, that. Um, always had a security brief and so forth. Because in pre-9-11, it was not such an imperative, quite honestly. This is Desert Shield, Desert Storm. But I had a good, uh, uh, I won't say good scare, but I had a good surprising, eventful trip where I saw an awful lot of gaps in my preparation. And... You know, I resolved to make it better. I was only a lieutenant junior grade, which is like a first lieutenant in the army. So, I only had about three years in the in the navy at that point. But valuable lessons learned. And again, that's those are examples of the sea stories that follow up the lessons that are called about preparation and and how to do business. So, I think I think there will be folks that will uh, find the book interesting.
1: Jiggy, I'm dying to find out what McGee said. <laughs>
0: He said, "Thank you for the burgers and the soda." I don't know what he said to the Emiratis, uh, but uh, as I said, it it did not it did not pass muster with the guards.
2: Yeah. Wow. Apparently. that is amazing. So, so Admiral, what, what one of the things that I find absolutely amazing is that there are so many. People nowadays that are in leadership positions and all these different things that they should not be. (laughs) What what can your book teach folks that are trying to make their way through life? Well, you know,
0: so if you're talking about youngsters and young adults. Uh, first thing is, you know, kind of when when you say farm, faith and education, translation for farm is hard work, right? There is no substitute for that. You have to be willing to work to succeed, period. Uh, and then, and then, you know, if you have for your children or you had made for you as a child these home-based priorities, hard work, faith, education, you go back to those when you leave home, right? And I encourage folks to do that. As a matter of fact, you know, if you're, if you're a faithful churchgoer as a child and you're going to a new town, I tell people to do that. As a matter of fact, there's a portion in the book where I stopped doing that at school. I was an Episcopalian growing up, and one of my professors figured out that I was an Episcopalian and uh, that I hadn't been going to church. And he was—he uh, was in charge of the chapel, the Episcopal chapel. And he stopped me. I was a junior. I'd been there two and a half years. Said, "Go to church when I go back home," because mother was insistent, right? And I, I'm a believer too, but I just didn't fall into it at school. I tell you, Captain Cousins ripped me. His Navy captain ripped me. I knew you know what out there on the parade deck. I thought my you know what didn't stink because I was a junior at the Citadel. You know, I was past most of the hard stuff of academics. You know, I was telling people what to do. And so what Captain Cousins did is he said, "Look, St. Alban's Episcopal Chapel. You're now on the vestry, which is the governing board." I said, "Sir," didn't realize. There was an election. He says, not an election. This is a dictatorship. You're on it. And so what he wanted me to do is to canvass folks who had listed Episcopalian and encourage them to go. So that put me back out into the Corps of Cadets with other Episcopalians, bringing them in. I met Father Roberson. I met another uh, uh, professor there who was uh, also an Episcopalian. So that portion of the book really highlights my first formal mentorship. And the portion of the book is called... Uh, Uh, the professor, the priest, and the Navy captain, because they were three people who were adults at the Citadel who took charge of me when I was, uh, I won't say I was uh, falling by the wayside or doing things that were bad, but I wasn't doing the optimal things I should, that I'd been taught to do by my parents. They, They picked up the rope where my parents couldn't because they weren't down at school with me, and they put some tension on that line, and they brought me back into the center of that swim lane. It's a very important portion of the book where it shows the importance of mentorship. Now, go down the line. Father Roberson from that chapel baptized my son at Citadel when he was born, and my son went on to be a Citadel graduate, two thousand fourteen class. So I took him back to Summerall Chapel for his baptism. Uh, Captain Cousins wrote me a scintillating letter to get into law school, and I didn't go to law school. I stayed uh, stayed in the Navy. But it kept up with him, and he's, he was a retired naval officer. He always kept up with me, asked me how I was doing. Giving me the mentorship, I'm trying to do in the book. Dr. Bevansy, the other priest who was also Episcopalian, taught me in many business courses. And when my son was going to the Citadel, you know, trying to get in and so forth, and putting together his application, Dr. Bevansy was a provost. Watched my son from a distance, gave him a little nudge here and there when he saw things going a little bit to the side. So it's that enduring mentorship that passed through generations Mm. Uh, that 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 is key. So you ask me, what can youngsters do to get through life? You should be cultivating mentors in every job you do, every place you go, to give yeah. you that. Uh, uh, you know, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us to give you that boost, that uh, the wisdom of experience. And then you need to mentor downward, right? You need to cultivate those junior folks. Who need to come and uh, and see you for experience as well. So it's it really is a passing of the torch type of thing with mentorship. So uh, we have we have in this point and click environment the idea that you can do things yourself, you can Google all the facts you want, and so forth. But you must build those personal relationships, those mentorship relationships, if you want to be successful. Uh, the biggest fallacy of the 21st century is that relationships don't matter. That's a lie. And I'll go one better. They matter even more now because you get less of a shot for those interactive personal interactions. Got to make them stick. Got to have that 30 second speech ready to go. You have to know what you're going to say. You have to be able to talk about your product or your business or your class or whatever you've got on the agenda. Um, And I'm I'm fearful that for some of our youngsters, through no fault of their own, they've grown up in a point and click environment um, and they haven't been forced into. That interpersonal interaction that is required to be able to influence people to, uh, to take your side, take your stand uh, to advance your cause.
2: That is awesome. So, Roger. Yes. What, what else you have here for.
1: Well, I, I'm, I'm pondering what the Admiral's saying. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I was just wondering how much would be tolerated in today's military. Uh, I know you were referring to the Citadel, but but still, uh, it, it seems like this country, we need more of the nuclear family, right? And when you say mentorship, I, I assume you mean I, also saying parenting. Yeah, we need more yeah. parenting, but there are we need more of the nuclear family in America. But sadly, as we know, there are many screaming for the destruction of the nuclear family.
0: I, I think there's no doubt the statistics will back up that the optimal model is a two-parent family. For sure. And I think we need to be in the business. I always talk about business in the business of raising our kids with an eye toward finding someone they're going to spend a life with. That'll be a comfort to their soul and not a test of it. So I think that's, that's, that's very, uh, very important. That being said, um, uh, you know, I get asked this question from time to time about, you know, I was asked in a a discussion, Hey, you know, don't you wish every kid could be a farm kid? Yeah, it'd be great. But I got to tell you one of the best sailors I ever had, was a kid from the hard streets of Compton, California. Uh, You know, he's a young sailor, and you could tell by the marks on his body and the scars and so forth, he lived the life in Compton, California. (laughs) You know, but when he was put in an environment of accountability, responsibility, safety, and honor, I have to tell you, he turned nearly immediately... You know, there was, there was some training needed to be done, but very quickly into one of the finest sailors I've ever seen. So here, yes, I think the nuclear family is very important. And, and but the military has uh, is first of all, it's a meritocracy. You you uh, you get what you earn. That, yeah. That's how it works. Uh, but you can take a kid from a really tough environment. And if they've got the right mentality, if they want to hack the life, the military can be uh Uh, can can change can change the generational wealth of that family both in training in honor and quite frankly in earning as well because you go in the military you get the access to GI Bill you go to college and off you go and so um, yes uh, we need more nuclear family we need to be encouraging our kids we need to be taking measures to stop our daughters from getting impregnated uh, before they're married before they're out of school all all that type of stuff needs needs to happen. Uh, but it's not to say that people can't be uh, that can't uh, uh, experience reclamation if they have a tough life. And in the end, it's up to you. The book says you're a product of your choices. Number one. Number two. Society demands a toll. You're going to have to pay a toll in society of hard work. Whether you do it with when you're young and energetic and smart, and you're and you're putting away dollars uh, for a rainy day and so forth, or whether you squander that time and you're an old man. Working, uh, you know, working manual labor, or uh, you know, working working jobs that just barely, uh, you know, cover your expenses, and you're living a hard life because you 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 didn't live smart, you didn't think smart uh, as a, as a youngster. Uh, you're going to pay that toll at some point, uh, and and so I think that I think that's uh, I think that's very important. As to the military, how it exists in today's world, uh, first thing I'll stipulate is. Um, I left in in September 30th of 2020, so uh, I have no firsthand knowledge of anything that's happened since then. Um, Our U.S. military has become preeminent because we focus, uh, have focused on combat lethality. My definition of combat lethality, quite frankly, is having the ability to quickly and mercifully put down any enemy and bring as many Americans and allies home safely as possible. Any agenda... Uh, asymmetric or otherwise that distracts from uh, our ability uh, through combat lethality uh, sub optimizes our military and can get some of our young men and women hurt so that's that's really where I am when I was in the military one of my one of my last secretaries of defense was a gentleman named James mattis uh, that was his priority it was easily articulated up and down the chain of command from a first day entrant in boot camp to a, a senior uh, admiral or general uh, leading thousands of people and I think that that's uh, as long as we keep that focus, we'll be okay.
1: You know that's what awesome. you were saying. I'm sorry, Jiggy. Go. No,
2: Jiggy. no, that's awesome. Go, go, go ahead,
1: but, Roger. I mean, what he's saying, and I know, I know you agree with me, Jiggy. I mean, what you're saying uh, is very wholesome stuff. It's to me that's the first word that comes to mind: wholesome. And yet, what you said—if we say that today—we'll be labeled, right? We're going to be labeled. All kinds of things. I mean, oh, God forbid you talk about a, a man and a woman, and that means that we are against other people. Look, we don't care what everybody does. Do what you do and be done with it. There's, but, I, I will tell you, uh, Roger, there's an old adage in the
0: farm portion of the book. It's very instructive here. The well-worn path is well-worn for a reason. Mm, it works. I love that. Everybody walks that path because it works, right? So what works for America? Right? What is the optimal solution? Not the always solution, but the optimal solution. Two parent families raising kids, exposing their kids to adversity, not wrapping them up in bubble wrap, not letting them get raised by video games and social media, putting them in activities that worked before and work now. Jobs after school, where another adult will hold them accountable. Sports, where you will have a coach that will get in their backside from time to time, maybe yell at them and that tells them that being held accountable by your parents is not much different than being held accountable by your coach or your boss. Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts still are wonderful organizations to give kids experiences and reps and sets at achieving, at overcoming adversity. Because there's a portion in the book at the end of the Citadel portion, at the Citadel, Citadel chapter, which talks about the need to embrace adversity and, uh, adversity. and I would tell you, we need to get back in the business of encouraging courageous behavior with our kids right trial and error followed by trial and success and we don't need the parent to step in and argue grades with the teacher in high school and fill out their college uh college forms to get them into college or fill out their applications to get them their job and all this other type of stuff you need to you know it's you need to give those kids enough tools to go do some things shove them off let them do it and if they fail you would be there to pick them up and help them see where their lack of preparedness resulted in trial and error so that they can redouble their efforts and achieve trial and success. But who, who values transient gifts over strife and achievement? Nobody. What are the stories you want to tell? Here's how I busted my butt to achieve this goal. It's a great story. Nobody tells a story. Here's how mom and dad gave me everything. I didn't do anything. So, it's really, really kind of a different way of looking at it. I, I hope that I hope that you, people don't aren't so quick to label. I think some of what we're seeing with the labeling are the fringes on both sides who are so quick to train fire on one another. Um, I think I would tell someone if you have purity of motive, that is the best shield against any of that criticism. I mean, even if you've got a pure motive, and someone still uh, levies criticism upon you. You then have to take a look at what their motivation is. And typically, it's not as pure as yours. You just have to walk on knowing that uh, that you're uh, you're on a firm foundation.
1: You know, uh, the kids have been dumbed down for God knows how many years you or how many decades, rather, even. And I know this couldn't happen, but if I could wave a magic wand, and I don't even say this from being a Christian, uh, but if I could wave a magic wand, I would have all the kids go through... Catholic schools or military school? I love the Catholic model. I'm not a Roman Catholic, but
0: there's a story in there about a Roman Catholic priest on my first ship who uh, who gave uh, me and my sailors a, a spiritual accommodation that he didn't have to do. He's a great man. But I like the Catholic model for schools. As a matter of fact, my nephew went to uh, Lexington Catholic in uh, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, he played football for him, stuff like that, Episcopalian, not Catholic. They welcomed him with open arms great educational experience for them and they also do the whole person concept so it's not just your academics it's your athletics it's being fit it's being held accountable so i do like the catholic school model um as well uh and i think uh, uh i think the military uh, uh, operates as well also but but i have to get back to the single point of failure with kids as parents you can have all the greatest schools in the world, the military and so forth. And yeah, every now and then that will make up for poor parenting. But by and large, um, the the single point failure or success with kids is is parents who take an interest, parents who set priorities, parents who hold kids accountable, parents who raise adults. And my dad, you know, as a, as a guy who left home at 15, when you got to be about 12 or 13, he looked at you like a man, right, because you were doing man's work on the farm. And you are held accountable like a grown man and that's why I kind of in, in the book there's a, a portion in there about city rules don't apply to farm kids because we're driving at the age of eight and nine we're shooting guns we're riding horses uh we're doing uh grown-up work and at the end of the work day if nobody's watching the, the guys on the crew if they're passing around beer at the end of the work day and as a 12 year old did you did 18 21 22 year old work they're gonna hand you a beer so it's and it's not to say that it's the right thing it's just to say that As a farm kid, you know, you're going to experience things very early that are going to be uh, little lessons that you can put in your toolkit as you get a little further down the line. Now, there's a double-edged sword to that. I was a farm kid that, you know, dad moved me around schools a lot because if he thought it was too easy for me, he moved me. If he thought I was getting in trouble with uh, uh, kids, he moved me. And my final couple years were at a Cracker Jack private school in Lexington that he could not afford, but I went there. Uh, and grade school called SARE. Um, now I didn't apply myself appropriately to maximize the education. Cause I was a farm kid where city rules didn't apply. And I was acting like an adult, you know, having a good time rather than a young adolescent student maximizing a good educational opportunity. That was a poor choice on my part. I call that out in the book. I call myself out in the book several times where I failed or where I did not optimize the experience. Um, but uh, uh, but to be sure, I'll go back to it. It's all about the parents. Um, and if we if we're having trouble with our kids, I think you got to turn your turn your eyes toward the parents. Teachers can help, coaches can help, McDonald's managers who are you know working your kids can help. Boy Scout leaders, Girl Scout troop leaders, they can help. But without the parents, um, all can be lost very quickly.
1: Jig, yes. This is where I get really distressed, though. I agree with everything the admiral <laughs> is saying, but yet we have a, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to drag you into politics what, whatsoever when I say this, but there's an organization that's been publicly approved by Major League Baseball with their logo right on the pitcher's mound. I'm referring to Black Lives Matter, and they squarely are against the nuclear Family, and yet they have been embraced by major corporations, major sports, uh, like I say, Major League Baseball. And uh, I love what you're saying, but but I see these uh, where half the country is embracing BLM, it and it breaks my heart. I actually had a very good friend of mine, not a good friend of mine, but a fellow ball player, Uh, and I covered up the New York emblem on my Yankee hat which I used to wear at these uh, league softball games, because I was very upset that they put BLM on the pitcher's mound. And I didn't say make any comments, but they just saw that it was taken off. And so it came up, and he says, well, don't you believe black lives matter? And Admiral, uh, my wife.
0: I'll, 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 I'll comment, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm kind of a, a political. First thing I'll say is baseball was my sport, played it through high school favorite sport i love watching baseball but only live i don't like it on tv because you can't see the whole field uh, and you can't see the strategy um and so my team big red machine of the 70s oh let's see you know so that was when i was playing ball as a youngster and uh uh and and so you know that's that's my team you know I, i will say that without calling out specific organizations and so forth um I think that corporate America is starting to learn that if you, if you play politics in your corporate operations, it can come back to bite you. I'm not saying one way or the other. It's really not my place or my point to do so. Mm -hmm. But, um, if you're a profit motivated company, your motivation needs to be profit and taking care of your people so you can continue to do that and so forth. And it's not to say that you can't take a stand as a corporation and so forth, but, but I, I do think that, um, that second edge to the sword has been coming back to bite a couple companies uh, from time to time who get too far into politics um, uh, for their for their customers uh, for their customers uh, tolerance um, so uh, it's part of it but you know what uh, nothing's new right I, I love to read biographies of our founding fathers right mm-hmm. and I'm really focused on the education that are you know that they gave their their kids as youngsters with tutors and learning Latin and Greek and what you had to do to get into college. And when you applied to college, you didn't apply to a college. You applied to a professor at the college. The professor accepted you, and you paid the professor. You didn't pay the college. The professor paid the college. So whether or not you went to Harvard depended on whether you could sell your academic, academic uh, qualifications to a professor. Very interesting in that regard. But for everybody who says, oh, the media is so awful, they're backbiting, they're, you know, and – and uh, and politics is, 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 is more poison than it ever was. No, it was just as bad when you get back with Hamilton and Jefferson and Adams, and they had their own newspapers that were willing to uh, write completely slanted, biased articles on one another and so forth. If you go back and you read that, you will find that angst and friction is as much a part of our background in America uh, as is uh, old glory, and the national anthem and so it's instructive to, it, what it does is that gives you kind of a peace of mind that yeah it's bad i don't like watching the news right i don't like watching the fighting back and forth but when you realize that it's been bad before and we came out okay then, then you're like okay there's a process going on here now certainly we're duty bound to contribute uh to society and and add value and there's a portion in the book where i talk about data that dispels the fallacy that I hate hearing where perception is reality. No. Perception is perception. The truth is absolute. Data helps you get to the truth and cl- and, and clear obfuscation and bias and stuff like that. So I do think that while uh, you don't throw up your hands and say, Jesus sucks out there, I'm going to let the, the food fights go on. Where you can infuse yourself, you should, but you shouldn't lose sleep over uh, – over people with an agenda, plying their trade uh, in their world of uh, world of agenda or whatever, whatever, uh, whatever commentators are out there trying to, uh, you know, drum up their narrative. It's it's going to be with us. It'll get better from time to time. I think it wasn't so bad when we had uh, presidents in the '70s and the '80s. You know, once you, Ford, Carter, Reagan. Uh, you know Bush, uh, uh, you know H.W. Bush, and so forth. I mean, we we had issues, but um, I, I do think when we talked about the interpersonal skills and and dealing with each other one on one, I do think in politics our politicians don't join together from opposite parties and and see each other as humans, right? See each other as a person that, that may disagree and have purity of, uh, of motive. I talk a lot in there in the book about. Infusing a family atmosphere in the commands I had, because when you look at someone as a brother or sister in your family at work, it's much much harder to objectify them and abuse them, right? And so I think you know if we if we have our politicians on the right and the left, and they're so angry at one another that they can't have a cocktail together or go to a reception and figure out that hey, you know my counterpart there from the other side of the aisle has a child that's sick. Oh, my counterpart there from the other side of the aisle is retiring at the end of this year. I think I'm going to do something special. I think I'm going to get him a gift from my state, whatever the case may be. Those relationships have to be built back. I love the stories of Tip O'Neill and Ronald. Right. Wayne, right. And, uh, you know, with the, with the, you know, the Irish background and, and, you know, various flavors of my family and so forth. You know, two Irishmen that could get together for a drink and talk through some of the things they needed to tackle then go back to their corner with their own constituents and their own teams and find that middle ground. I think we need more of that uh, for sure. Um, And I'm hopeful that we, uh, you know, as the elections turn out the way they are and and different, uh, different people take over that we get some of that.
2: Well, as we wrap up here, let's start with uh, Roger. Roger, how how do we get your stuff online and get involved with what you're doing, brother?
1: Uh, Okay. Yeah. There's a couple of parodies. Um, bringbacktrump.net once again that's bringbacktrump.net and then uh, there's another one um, he was framed by hillary.net he was framed by hillary.net and I always forget my email should I give my email address?
2: if you want to give it go ahead
1: brother yeah and I, I can't remember the other ones that are connected with the video so uh, home net. homefield just like as in sports Fantastic. So, so before I go, I want to. Yes. It, was a, it was a real. It was an honor to be uh, on the show uh, with Admiral
2: uh, Palmer. So, Admiral, uh, how do we get your book and uh, keep it in touch with you and everything?
0: If you, if you, uh, uh, from Bluegrass to Blue Water, if you type that in any of the major online uh, booksellers, so Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, uh, etc., cetera, et cetera, There's a dozen of them. A couple from the UK. You can get that Fidelis Publishing will give you a fifteen percent discount though. If you go into their website, they'll 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 send you the book and so forth. We're also in a dozen bookstores uh, or more in South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio. Uh, Barnes and Noble especially, so you can find us there. My website that addresses authorship and stuff like that is jtpalmerenterprises.com, um, uh, and that's uh, where you can read a little bit more about the book. You can send me a message through the uh, you know through the fields there, and I'll get it in my email and so forth. If you have a A question or so forth. So that's that's a a way to get in touch with me. But the book's not hard to find. Sales are going well. Um, Great support by Fidelis Publishing for sure. Uh, And I uh, I encourage you to uh, to pick up the book. It's designed. You know, it's only cover to cover is 225 pages. It's designed to be read on a cross country flight with a layover in there. You to be able to get all the way through it. (laughs) Get your lessons. Mark it up, and be uh, and and add value in a a fairly short period of time. So uh, I've had some really good responses, some from folks out there, some business uh, men and women, uh, attorneys, law law, uh, officers, attorneys and uh, managing partners from law firms have started to buy my book and and pass it out to uh, some folks, because I actually make a couple of uh, uh, analogies to, uh, you know, junior attorneys and so forth in there. We've got a lot of attorneys in my family, too.
2: But anyway, that's how you do
0: it. hate to ramble sorry
2: no you're good you're good well it's been an honor and a privilege roger i will uh talk to you uh next month and uh i hope so yeah month of january and uh did did i
1: did q and uh
2: and uh, i don't know know what what happened to him i'm glad you were here Uh, (laughs) well uh well admiral thanks for doing this brother and uh we will talk to everybody really soon Thank you, guys. Yeah,
0: well, you know, you know how to get in touch with me. Thank you very much, Roger. Pleasure meeting you. My pleasure. Okay. My you, honor. Thank you, your Admiral. Kind, your kind attention. Thank
2: Thanks you, guys. There you. they go. Go, uh that, that is uh, Admiral Palmer and the fantastic. Roger Homefield today here on our big program. So, that wraps it up here from our big broadcast. We thanks for joining us on Twitch. Thanks for joining us on Odyssey. And, of course, JiggyJaguar.com. And if you're listening to us live, it is uh, replay time. If you're listening to us on our archived audio, I believe the term, ladies and gentlemen, is peace.